0: Let's visit the 90s all over again. Put on those hammer pants. This is Dope Nostalgia.
1: Welcome everybody to episode 114 of the podcast. This is Dope Nostalgia. My name is Naomi, your host. Our special guest today is from an awesome American rock band, straight out of Seattle, Washington, Kevin Martin, the lead singer of Candlebox. Candlebox has some exciting stuff coming up with tours and whatnot, so we figured now is a great time to get them on the show. Before we get to that, here's a little bit of information about the band. Wikipedia Wikipedia Moments!
2: Please bear in mind that Wikipedia is not to be taken as actual 100% fact. Any donkey could edit it at
1: any time. If I'm reading you the artist bio, that stuff is real truth. Candlebox is an American rock band from Seattle, Washington. Since its formation in 1990, the group has released seven studio albums, several charting singles, a compilation, and a CD plus DVD. Candlebox found immediate success with the release of its self titled debut album in July 93. Candlebox featured four singles Change, You, Far Behind, and Cover Me. Far Behind reached the top 20 and the album was certified quadruple platinum by the RIAA. The band's next album, Lucy, was certified gold in 1995 and was followed three years later by Happy Pills in 1998. After troubles with its record company, Candlebox broke up in the year 2000. The band reunited in 2006, and they have since released four more studio albums. Into the Sun in 2008, Love Stories and Other Musings 2012, 2016 brought us Disappearing in Airports, and 2021, brand new album now out called Wolves. Let's welcome Kevin Martin to the show and talk about all things Candlebox. All right, Kevin, welcome to Dope Nostalgia. My name is Naomi, and I thank you once again for being here with us today. Um, oh, my pleasure. Now, when I think about Candlebox, I always think about them being like a straight-ahead rock band. Now, with you guys hitting the charts in around 93, looking at the location and the timing where you were starting, um, are you guys a, considered a grunge band?
2: Well, I think that um, in, in certain camps, we probably were, um, but I think that mainly just be you know guilty by association or um, mm-hmm. uh, environmental closeness. Um, being from Seattle, I think that was just a label that everybody got. But we always kind of considered ourselves just a blues-based rock band. I mean, everything that we've done, even when we started, the foundation was always on um, blues-based uh, chord progressions and, and stuff like that. And we de- rarely, I mean, we're still in standard tuning, um, mm-hmm. even to this day. And we only ever down tuned to drop D like I think maybe in our entire career seven songs so it wasn't ever really um you know like Alice in Chains is drop D um mm-hmm. and Soundgarden had several songs that were drop uh drop uh D and um I believe C yeah but we never did that we were we we're just always kind of a standard rock band
1: and a lot of standard rock bands do do that so yeah that's yep. always the impression i got so when i was doing some research about you guys and i kept seeing the word grunge thrown around i was kind of surprised <laughs> by it
2: Yeah it never it never really i mean listen uh, you know it's uh it, i think it was just a term that was adopted by the media to, you know you have to name something yeah. uh in order to to get people to pay attention i don't know you know what they Maybe that's kind of why the Chicago music scene never really took off because at the same time, you know, there was great bands coming out of Chicago um, or even Illinois for that matter. Um, But there was never really a label given to that. So um, maybe that's why it didn't succeed. (laughs)
1: And it's radio too. Radio needs to have some platform to put the band on, which is understandable, I guess. (laughs) But it's better not to label. I, I agree. Who were your musical heroes growing up? Your Influences, uh, um,
2: influences and inspiration. I mean, there's so many. Modus Redding kind of um, always been my favorite singer. Um, Love Led Zeppelin, um, The Clash. Uh, the Clash is my favorite band of all time. Um, mm. I, I grew up on punk rock, so Dead Kennedys, Butthole Surfers, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, the Germs was one of my favorite bands, Um I really, I just kind of. Um, I guess it was probably mainly because I was, I was the youngest in my family. Um, the formative years for me were from like 1978 to 1984, and at the time I was living in San Antonio, Texas, and there was a great punk scene that was moving through through um, Texas, and uh, you know, I guess there was the DC punk scene, the New York punk scene, the Texas punk scene, and the California punk scene. So um, that's kind of the influence, um, really took over at a, at a very young age for me. And I had an older sister that listened to bands like the cars and Ramones and stuff like that. So, um, I gravitated towards that. And I love, I've always loved Blondie. Um, she's always been kind of one of my favorite bands, um, favorite singers. So that's kind of where, um, my heroes come from. Um, I never really emulated any of that. Um, I played Mm. drums in a punk band, but, um, I never really, uh, I didn't want to be a singer in a rock band for sure. This is kind of like the reluctant lead singer job for me.
1: Is that one of those cases where there was nobody else to fill the spot? So you
2: went for it? No, I was just in a friend of mine asked me to sing on some demos. He'd, um, he'd heard me singing, you know, (laughs) Hey kitty. He heard me singing (laughs) at uh, at parties and stuff, you know, Um, just a, a good friend that was doing some demos. He was trying to start a band and asked me to sing on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Scott Mercado, um, who, um, was a, an acquaintance of mine, um, was asked by Rick as well to kind of play drums on it. So that's how Scott and I met. And, um, I sang on these demos and then that ended up in becoming a band called Uncle Duke, which became Candlebox. And then I've been stuck with this job ever since.
1: <laughs> and weren't you guys the first successful artists signed to Maverick Records? Okay
2: uh yes we were the first band signed to maverick and um the first successful band Then i think deftones were after us and then alanis or alanis and then the deftones i can't recall
3: Mm
1: -hmm. um now this being madonna madonna's label and i'm sure that there were a lot of other people involved of course how involved was she back then
2: um you know to be honest with you i i don't think she was really that involved it was it was purely a vanity label for her. I mean, mm-hmm. I know Freddie, Freddie DeMann, who was managing her at the time, he was also managing Lionel Richie uh, and had just come off of managing Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. um, had approached Lionel uh, Richie with um, the partnership with Maverick Records and Lionel wasn't interested and Madonna was like, yeah, I'll, I'll throw $10 million at it. So um, I think they they started the to, to label together, Freddie and Madonna,
3: mm-hmm.
2: with Warner Brothers. Um, but, I don't really think she had um, much to do. it. I mean, she certainly didn't have anything to do with signing us. It was Freddie and, and Guy Um mm-hmm. We didn't actually even meet her until April of 94. So, um, was, we got signed in the fall of 92 and didn't meet Madonna until April of 94. So, um, yeah, I don't think it was really something that she felt... Um, great responsibility for uh i will tell you this though she was a she was a great label owner um you know when we were when we were in need of things early on um there was never um uh, there was never a question asked and you know, it was always like yeah give them whatever they need so um you know i i guess those, those are the kind of bosses you really want mm-hmm. um and then, of course, you know, as as the label grew and got bigger and bigger and bigger, um, I think she probably certainly wanted to take more responsibility for what was happening and was more involved with um, maybe the signings or listening to the music of the bands that, that um, they were interested in. I know they, they went after Marilyn Manson really, really hard. Um, and she was instrumental in kind of um, flying to um, Orlando to meet with um, with um, Manson. and um, And again, with the prodigy as well, I know that she was... Um, super, super um, instrumental in in uh, making that happen. So that kind of came, you know, after us and the success of Candlebox and, and Alanis Morissette. But early on, I, I don't. Uh, long story short, I don't think she really um, knew what was going to happen with the label.
1: Okay, yeah, and from what I understand now, it's uh, Maverick still exists, but it's more of like a management agency by Guy Siri now
2: yeah exactly i the label folded into warner brothers i think in 2010 or 2012. Mm. they're not certainly not signing any bands or putting records out but yeah that's the management company's huge um you know guy um he found us when he was 19 uh, 19 or 20 about to turn 21 and um and you know it was just a really um hungry uh young kid with great vision and um you know the success that he's produced for himself uh, over the past um, thirty years is is mind-boggling. I mean, he's um, he's best friends with Irving Azov and um, you know, and and he manages Madonna, and he manages um, everybody, and I think Pharrell's partners with him in some stuff. I mean, it's it's pretty um, pretty amazing what he's been able to do for himself. But the label, um, you know, sadly, um, I think right around 2000, 2002 is is where it really lost its vision. Um, and and that happens. I mean, you know, I think that um, with vanity labels, um, when they become um, very, very successful, uh, I don't really know that they know how to manage themselves, if you will. Um, uh, the, the artists continue to produce, uh, but there's so much great success um, that everybody kind of loses sight as to what they started out doing. And, and I think that Maverick was... Sadly, one of those labels that that happened to. I mean, if you look at Sire Records um, uh, or, or for that matter, 4AD um, as examples of labels that were started out with, um, with one vision and continued to produce that one vision, um, those labels had great success, um, you know, even up to right around 2002 and 2004. Um, Maverick was um, supernova, if you will. And, and I think that that's kind of what happened with them
1: and of course like outside influences like the landscape changing right yeah exactly so at what point in your success as a band do you get a road crew and like a drum tech a guitar tech at what, at what point does it go from playing fun the local clubs <laughs> yeah hauling your gear into the into the venue yourself to all that changing
2: from fun to work um, so <laughs> You know, I mean, stupidly, way too early for us. Um, When we first started touring, everybody had to have their own tech. It was ridiculous. Scott, our drummer, had a tech. Pete, our guitar player, had a tech. Barty, our bass player, had a tech. We had a sound guy. We had a tour manager. Um, uh, It was, there were eight of us in a a, a van. Um, (laughs) It was ridiculous. Um, And that was, you know, from from April of 1993, 1993, all the way to January or February of 94, um, we traveled like that. So uh, Mm. it was, it was not the smartest thing to do. Um, You know, financially really wasn't, but, you know, we also had great success early on. So that kind of allowed for it. Um, Mm. I think it kind of got out of control on the second record when we, we showed up, um, in the Midwest to, to start the, the tour for Lucy. And we had three semis and five tour buses. And I was, just, I immediately called my manager. I'm like, this is just way too much. This is the stupidest wow. thing we could ever we're spent We're spending a hundred thousand dollars a day on a tour that doesn't even, you know, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, of course we had, we had sold out, you know, all the, the first 10 venues, but, I mean, it's just, that's just not where we came from. And then we actually fired our agent um, over the whole thing because we initially had discussed going out and doing just theaters um, mm. to reacclimate the band with the audience and um, and uh, management and um, an agent went against us and chose to do something different. And that's not, you know, it's kind of our fault as well for not really paying attention to um, our tour books and the things that we knew were coming up. but. Um, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a shocker to show up and see that many, that many things on tour with us for a band who'd only had one album that, you know, at that point had only sold like, you know, 3 million copies. It hadn't even reached 4 million at that point. So, um, yeah, it was a bit stupid.
1: Do you think it's preferable to play for those crowds and those theater sized crowds just for the intimacy lo- of it?
2: I love it. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've been, I've been in theaters now for the past, um, Geez, about twenty years, and and um, you know, I, I love. Listen, when we get to play arenas and stuff like that, it's amazing. Or outdoor festivals and there are thirty thousand people, it's brilliant. Yeah. But well, I love the intimacy of the theaters. Um, I'm I'm a very um, hands-on performer, and um, you know, I'm, I I love the audience, and 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 I love the opportunity. Um, you know, we played uh, one of the places we've been trying to get back to for years and years and years is the Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver. Oh, wow. um, it's just a special place and we've only ever played there twice um and i I love it there um it's it's like the rosen ballroom in in portland is is very similar um this setup is great it's perfect for for crowds it's great for the artist and um and that's kind of what i prefer to do
3: Now, maybe I did not mean to treat you bad, yeah, But I did it anyway. And then maybe the song would say your life was sad, yeah, But you lived it anyway. And so maybe your friends would stand. You fall into the ground and then someday your friends will stand beside as you were flying oh you were flying out so high but then someday be
1: I imagine that you probably got to spend more time in Vancouver uh, back in
2: the day. Are you still located in Seattle? No, no. I left Seattle in 98. Um, I moved down to Los Angeles. Um, But yeah, when I, my dad moved us there in 1984 and and by, um, by 86 and 87, I was, Uh, up there all the time for concerts. I saw the Chili Peppers on New Year's Eve at Graceland, um, in, uh, 1986 or 87, 86, 87. I can't remember. Um, I saw, uh, Cabaret Voltaire, Front 242, um, Chris and Cozy, a lot of those bands, um, either at Love Affair or Graceland or, or, um, Commodore Ballroom and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I loved going up there and then every Christmas, uh, and every winter I was up at Black Hole and Whistler snowboarding. So, um, it's nice. one of my, one of my uh, favorite places in Canada, Vancouver. Yeah,
1: yeah no, I'm, I'm located out of Edmonton. So it's oh, beautiful. I've been there as well. 12 hour drive to Vancouver. It's been a while since we've been out yeah. there. But, yeah. yeah. Um,
2: Edmonton's great. I've, I've been there for the rodeo um, a couple of times and then I would do uh, uh, like Banff Springs for, you know, snowboarding as well. So.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 No, it's pretty cool to be this close to the Rockies pretty
2: beautiful stunning stunning
1: (laughs) now metal edge magazine which was a staple in my life back in the day 1994 you guys won the reader's choice for best new band were you a reader of metal edge yourself
2: i don't know i wasn't really a magazine guy um i mean i had rolling stone and stuff like that and of course growing up um cream magazine and and whatnot was um kind of a staple for me, but, you know, it was more so, I was like the fanzine kid, you know, um, Mm -hmm. being such a fan of punk rock music fanzines were kind of what I really got into. Um, I didn't, I knew Jerry and, um, uh, she was one of the, she actually recently passed away. Um, Mm -hmm. but she was kind of one of the people from metal edge that early on took us under her wing and took great care of us and made sure that we got, you know, good layouts in the magazine or good stories. Um, but I, I didn't really, magazines weren't kind of my thing. Um, I, I just, I was like, Oh, that's, that's cool. You know, great. I mean, it's, you know, it, the, the fans, when the fans appreciate you, um, it's, it's way more, um, gratifying than you know, some sort of trophy from, uh, you know, a bunch of people that, you know, probably got paid to, uh, put you up there, you know, the Grammys or whatever, which is, I mean, you know, an example of, of you know great way of disrespecting an artist's talents you know not giving um grammys based on you know the success of a record you know what happened with the weekend last year i mean it's ridiculous um and and that's kind of the the world that you know we live in as musicians is um the fans aren't the importance of the fan uh and and what they mean to your music it doesn't translate when it comes to um you know the real uh career you have um outside of you know i guess maybe it's i'm speaking from a social networking kind of thing but you know you you can have all this movement and and fans love you and and then you can't get you know a single on radio Um, and and you've got you know, 50,000 streams per week of your song and radio won't play it because they're not getting paid to, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, a trophy or an accolade from the Grammys or, you know, the rock and roll hall of fame or something like that is irrelevant because ultimately the only people that matter to your career are the people that are are paying for it. And those are the, the fans that love what you do. So when we got that award with metal edge, um, I think that we were all kind of shocked because we didn't, um, we didn't think that anybody in that kind of realm, the world of, of, um, magazines or, um, or, uh, the media really got us or understood us. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was a bit of a shock. And of course, same thing happened with Rolling Stone magazine. I think Pete was, our guitar player was uh, recognized as like the best new up and coming guitar player, um, by the fans, the, the readers poll. Um, so those are great things, you know, mm-hmm. um, but again, I, I, I wasn't really the type of person that sat around and, you know, ran to the store to buy, you know, Circus or Metal Edge or Cream yeah. or Rolling Stone. It just wasn't my thing.
1: Understandably so. But yes, yeah, so I can understand that if it's, if it's from the fans, it means more than anything. I don't even yeah, know if I mean, the criteria for the Grammys is the same as it was when in the beginning because some of the nominations nowadays just make you shake your head.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, you laugh at Jethro Tull and ACDC or Metallica, best metal album, you know, Jethro Toll. It's like, what are you talking about? Um, and those types of things. But, you know, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know, but with the Grammys, you can actually pay $25,000 to be on the ballot. Um, and if your label really wants you to get some attention, they can pay for that sort of thing. And that's where I have a problem with it. I mean, I just, you know, I didn't get into music, certainly to, to, um, to get Grammys. Uh, I didn't even know about them until Um, you know, I released an album and uh, all of a sudden people were talking about Grammys and, you know, you could be nominated for a Grammy. I was like, I don't even know what that is. Um, Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, certainly if I had one, I'd be, you know, proud of it. But then again, at the same time, I wouldn't even know where it came from, you know.
0: Um,
2: (laughs) Did did the label pay for it? Um, You know, is it really? And, uh, you know, it's kind of the same thing with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, the fact that Soundgarden is still not in there, but Pearl Jam is, the Foo Fighters are, and the chili peppers and all this other kind of you know rock and roll music i it's i think it's just a uh, it, it does a uh, it's doing a great disservice those types of of um entities or or um, uh, businesses are doing a great disservice to what rock and roll really is
1: I hear more about who's should be inducted and in and who isn't than I do about who is in there like because yeah. of the fact that there's people there that deserve to be and haven't received that accolade yet
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, back when TV shows, variety shows, all of that were going on, you guys got to do any of those appearances, and who were some of your favorite shows to visit?
2: Uh, Letterman was great. We, yeah. we, we did Letterman three times, and he was just awesome. The, one of the nicest, uh, coolest guys ever, and a lot of fun to play the Ed Sullivan Theater. Um, we got did that it. three times. We also did the Jon Stewart show for MTV. Um, yeah, I mean, we weren't really I did Leno or Conan or any of those, um, you know, by the time our third record came out, people had already moved on from Candlebox. So, um, you know, it was really, we're, we're now just a fan based, you know, rock and roll band. And thank God we have fans that still listen to us and and buy our records. But um, back in the day, I mean, I would just have to say that Letterman was an absolute blast and it was always um, just a, a, Pleasure to to see him, and and, uh, and he would always come to the dress room and have conversations. And how's the band? What's going on? How's touring? Thanks for being here. Just you know those those types of things, and you know that's that's a, a real treat when you're um, a touring rock band, and and um, and you're hoping that someone's paying attention to what you're doing outside of of um, the people that are looking after your career.
1: Agreed. He seems like a fantastic man. Like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love his dry, witty humor to begin with, but like just the fact <laughs> that he seems very involved with the people he's having as his guests, which is nice. Yeah, he 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 he
2: gets really into it. I know um, when when we were booked, um, you know, he personally uh, chose us, and, and I mean, he loved the Seattle music scene, which is great. He also loved mm. what was going on in Chicago um, and and New York, but um, you know, I think he's. He, Eddie Vetter's like one of his best friends. Um so yeah, he he just was always a hands-on kind of um it's same with Howard Stern. Um, you know, he's very uh, into uh into the 90s rock and roll. Um and um and those, you know, those are that's who I care about. You know, if Howard Stern talks about Candlebox, it's the greatest, you know, day of of my life when I hear him talk about it. And mm-hmm. um and it was similar with uh, with Letterman, you know he just a, just a great guy and and um, and cared greatly about the artist that he had on a show
1: Of the albums you put out in that decade, what was your personal favorite?
2: Uh, God, I don't really like those first three albums. Um, ah. um, I mean there are songs on each one that I love um, but I you know. I don't really, I don't think I really understood who I was as a musician until the 2000s. Um, so if I had to choose um, from the, from the, you know, the nineties, I would say Happy Pills is probably my favorite because it's got, it's got some of the most creative music we've ever made as a band or ever had made as a band at that, up to that point. So um,
1: what would be a, a um, like an, a deep cut or an album track that you recorded off that, that you wish could have been a single?
2: Oh, um, God. uh, stone's throw away. Um, you know, it's, I mean, to listen, far too long of a song, but I, I just absolutely love that track. Um, I thought that leading off with it's all right was a, a bad move. I, I always kind of thought that, excuse me, happy pills. Um, would have been like a great first single for us to release because it it mm. it had so much kind of uh, um, attitude to it, and it was a you know with kind of the vein of of metal that was happening at the time, um, you know, Alice in Chains and and Corn and um, and and that sort of thing. That it was a song that would have generated a lot more interest. But I know the label was trying to direct us, trying to direct us into kind of the realm of a of a. Uh, you know, pop rock band like Train and, and that sort of thing that was happening. So um, it was that's when it kind of became difficult with the label, when the arguing started happening in the back and forth um, of, of uh, you know, pissing one another off because the label wasn't listening to us and we weren't listening to the label. But, yeah, I think that a stone's throw away off of Happy Bills would have been a great first single um, or a great single in general. Um, but I do, you know, Happy Pills and, and Stone's Throw are, are my two favorite songs on that record. And um, and I still play them to this day uh, in, in the sets. Mm-hmm.
1: call at Dope Nostalgia. Our number is 780-851-8785. Leave us a message. Pick up the phone just like you used to in the old days. Remember before text messaging? Yeah, we used to actually call each other. If you just want to be heard and be on the podcast, give us a call. Once again, our Dope Nostalgia hotline 780-851-8785. Pick up the phone. number is Canadian, so long-distance charges may
3: apply.
0: It's Mike, your host of Get the Word, an etymology podcast for word nerds. We'll talk about the history and origin of words in English. If you're coming over from the English sessions, well, then I'll give you an even bigger welcome, loyal listener, The English Sessions is the podcast I've been doing for a while now for English learners, and and is where Get the Word was first conceived. I decided to make Get the Word its own podcast since I started to realize I was making content more for native speakers with these etymology episodes, which seemed to warrant its own feed. Don't worry, though. For those of you who are English learners, there will still be transcripts of the episodes on the website. Look for details in the show notes. Get the Word, an etymology podcast for word nerds. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy extra sugar-free
2: gum. You get
3: extra flavor.
2: The long-lasting sugar-free gum is extra with NutraSweet for extra refreshing flavor that lasts an extra, extra, extra long time. Extra
3: flavor for that extra long flight. Extra flavor for that extra long night. When you're chewing extra, the
2: extra fresh flavor lasts an extra, extra, extra long time. Extra lasts extra long. But um, like on Lucy, i um, you know, the deep cut on that, on that record for me, um, that I wish would have been a single, um, was, um, Butterfly Reprise, the the closing track of the album. Um, but, you know, again, it's not really a single, it's an album track and in the vein of a, you know, a whole lot of love or something like Led Zeppelin or Stairway to Heaven, you know, there's just so much movement and action in those types of songs. Um, and that's what I really loved about Candlebox is when we got away from trying to write songs that were, um, radio friendly tracks, um, into the sun, uh, our fourth record, which was released in 2008. That's my, probably my ultimate candle box record and should have been our second album. Um, because it's just got, it has everything, um, that the band needed that we didn't have at the time. Um, you know, in, in 93 and 94, 95, we weren't that experienced of musicians. And when the band broke up in 2000, until 2006 we you know all of us musically um grew a lot artistically and creatively and so when we got back to together to make that album we took all of that influence that we had from from everything that we'd worked on mm-hmm. um and created and put it into one album so it's um it's a pretty spectacular record if, if i do say so myself and and um and a lot of magic on that record so um that's probably you know, the turning point for me as, as a musician as, and, and, and as a songwriter was, was uh, into design.
1: That's a beautiful thing, though, when you can take that break and do what you need to do to grow as an artist and just being able to bring it all back together with the same same group of people. Yeah. I can understand
2: why that would be so,
1: so great. Um, what well, were you is, doing it- during that time?
2: I was doing the high Watts. I had a, I had a, a side project called the high Watts. Um, I was producing, I was, you know, just doing things to keep myself busy. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, and I was writing with other songwriters and, and, you know, just kind of doing what you do as an artist. I mean, we were trying to get, you know, um, trying to get our, our band back on track. We, you know, there's a, there was a, a, a situation with Maverick records and we left the label that, you know, mm-hmm. the termination wasn't allowing for certain um, usage of, of the name and, you know, that kind of stuff that happened. So, you know, trying everything I could to um, kind of stay afloat.
1: And you were going to say something. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off with another question. But No, no, was, it's okay. It, yeah, no, you. I was just mentioning about how everyone was able to get back together with the, all, all that newfound, you know, artistry.
2: Well, it just, it, I, what I was going to say was, you know, when you start to realize who the songwriters are and, and you, you can embrace that and respect it. It makes it a lot easier um, to produce great music early on. Everybody thought they were songwriters and, but I've written the lyrics from album one till album seven, um, every single line. And, um, and and I've been the main melody writer for, for the band since day one. And, and, And I write the majority of the choruses. So I think that that battle from album one to album three of, of, you know, who's the songwriter, who's the songwriter. It it was irrelevant because we shared everything equally as a band. Everything was split 25%. um, Because that's ultimately what I wanted was I wanted to have that career where we were around 30, 40 years later and still the original band. But that wasn't the case because, um, you know, people, ego is a really, really challenging thing when it comes to being, um, uh, in a, in a band and, and it's, and it's, it can be, um, sometimes it can be great for it. And, but most of the time it's, it's, um, very destructive and it ended up breaking up the band, unfortunately. So by the time we got back together in 2008, the conversation, um, that I had with the guys was, listen, we know what we do. Um, we know who does what, um, let's just not, argue over it and see what we can produce. And that's how we were able to produce um, an album like into the sun was the positions um, were recognized as what the positions were. I'm the singer. I'm the, I'm the lyricist. I'm the melody writer. Pete's the guitar player that writes um, 30, 40% of the songs. Uh, Scott, you're the drummer and Barty the bass player. Um, And let's move forward. And that's, you know, and that's what we did.
1: Hmm. That's smart. Did you have any personnel changes
2: along the way? Oh, I've had tons of personal changes. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I always see these
1: things on Wikipedia, but I don't always take Wikipedia as gospel. So I
2: always yeah, guys. yeah. We didn't write our Wikipedia, so that's probably why it's it's, it's um, true. Anyone can um,
1: write your <laughs> Wikipedia. That's the problem.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Scott left in 96, 96 or ninety seven. Dave Cruzen joined the band um, for Happy Pills. Uh, then we broke up in um, uh, nine, uh, 99 or 2000. Um, Pete and I went went out with Rob Reddick, Robbie Allen, and, and uh, Shannon Larkin for like a six week tour that was um, just not a good idea. Um, the band went away, got back together in 2006 as the original band: Pete, Marty, and Scott. Uh, uh and myself and then Barty left uh in 2007 um because he had passed the bar and he was a lawyer and why would you go out on the road with a rock and roll band if you're an attorney um so then we had Adam Curry who'd been playing with me with the Watts, joined the band and Adam's been with me since 2003 and Pete and Scott left in 2016 and and I've had uh Adam, Memphis, um, Brian, Island, and um, Robin, Diaz. Um, and now I have another drummer, a guy named B.J. Mm-hmm. Kerwin. So, um, yeah, we're just kind of like, a, a, you know, Candlebox is not a sum of its parts. It's really, a, it's, it's the whole. Um, right. so, and I don't think anybody really gives a shit who's, who's playing our music just as long as I get to hear it.
1: Hey, exactly. What's the process like for the band when you start playing shows live, bringing the new energy of the new members into the fold?
2: Well, I mean, we do obviously rehearsals, um, but generally what it is 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 whoever comes into the band is usually a friend of somebody else's. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's been the nice thing is, is that, and, of, you know, of course, most of the musicians that play with me have our first record, um, you know, um, and so they know those songs. So it's not really like they're... Stepping into, um, you know, uh, uh, working with me blindly, mm-hmm. um, and and they're, you know, most of them are, you know, a blessing. They're so talented that you know they they spend hours and hours and hours learning the songs even before we show up for rehearsal. So that's a great thing as well. But um, yeah, it's usually about three or four days worth of rehearsals and just kind of running over the songs that are challenging or maybe um, um, difficult for somebody to figure out their part or whatever, but Mm. it's pretty basic. I mean, I like to really kind of fly by the seat of my pants anyways. Um, I find it, it's, it's far more interesting for, for me and the audience if we don't really go in there as a polished, um, you know, piece of metal. I like kind of rough edges and things. And I think it makes it a lot more fun.
1: Oh, I agree completely. I, I, I would much rather see that kind of a show. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it just, it lends itself to, um, to um, uh, what's the word? Yeah. It's, it lends itself to be way more interesting. Um, you know, we don't run tracks. We don't do any of that stuff. We, mm-hmm. we, we play all the parts and if there's a, if there's a saxophone part or something or a piano part, that's not there. You know, it's not there because we're not touring with that musician, but um yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's far more interesting.
1: Do you like to change up the set list from night to night too? Because I know if you got like some hardcore fans who want to come see you at different cities, it's really better for them too.
2: Yeah. We switch it up every night. We don't, um, that's why we also don't tour with a light guy and stuff like that because light guys don't like that. You know, they, they want to program what they program and they want you to play that set. We don't do that. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and it also makes it more interesting for us as a band. You know, if we haven't played something off of Lucy, um, you know, maybe for the past seven or eight shows, we'll throw in Lucy or we'll throw in Best Friend or we'll throw in um, Simple Lessons or, or Drown or something like that, just because we want to make it interesting for ourselves. And we want to enjoy the show just as much as our audience does.
1: Exactly. Now, talking about more recent um, what's going on <laughs> the 2018 show for the 25th anniversary of the debut album now what was that like for you
2: It was a blast um it was nice to to um catch up with the guys again you know i mean um everybody's you know we're all obviously growing older every single day um but we have just you know that first album was so magical for us and, um, and, and for so many people, you know, such a, such a great audience of fans that, that have grown with us over the years with with that record. Um, you know, I, you don't, you don't sell 7 million records worldwide and, and, you know, have people forget about you. You, you, um, when you put that thing back together, people flew in from all over the world to see those shows. Um, which was just great for us, you know, I mean, to do two nights in our hometown of Seattle at the, at the great theater of the Paramount um, mm-hmm. with 3,200 of our closest friends um, was, was great. I mean, it was funny. We, we did three nights worth of rehearsals um, in a tiny little rehearsal studio and, and, you know, kind of chuckling over what, what we had accomplished over, you know, whatever, 25 years. And, and, um, but it, when you set foot, on that stage, um, in front of those people, it's, um, it's an entirely different emotion. Uh, you know, you, you think, you know, what it's going to be like, and then, um, it's entirely different. I mean, it's so much greater and, and more welcoming than you, uh, expect it to be. And, um, and just a real joy and, 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 you know, even the mistakes that you make, um, on stage, you know um, are natural and, um, and fun. And, you know, we never really took ourselves so serious that, um, you know, anybody got in trouble for playing a wrong note or anything like that. So I think that's also kind of why, um, why we've just had such great success as a band for now 30 years now.
1: It sounds because like, to me that just the fact that you guys are doing it for the love of doing it and not about all the other stuff that can come along with it. That's probably a huge part of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, money comes, you know, money comes and goes and, and, and um, you know, we don't, you know, it's it's not like let's go play these two shows so we can make a hundred thousand dollars each or something like that. It's, it was just like, it's 25 years of of our album that we should play these shows for our fans, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that have allowed us to still be here. Um, And, um, and, respect we have for one another as well i think is uh is what makes it um easy to to get together and play those shows you know um and 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 fun you know um i mean nobody plays drums like scott Mercado. nobody plays bass like barty nobody plays guitar like pete and nobody sings like me i mean we're four incredibly independent uh and individual uh, uh human beings that um somehow i mean got together and made a record that um to this day, you know, still pays my rent. Um, that's crazy to me.
1: Now, the first album in five years, Wolves, came out in September. Mm-hmm. Now, was that something that was already planned or was it a result of the, the creativity during the pandemic? What were the songs about
2: for you? No, we, um, we had actually recorded that album uh, in August of 2019. So uh-huh. it was um, it was ready to go. I did the vocals uh, in January of 2020 and the record was mixed and mastered and ready to come out August of 2020. So that album, um, was waiting around and waiting around and sitting there gathering dust for, you know, an entire year. Um, and maybe even two years, if you, if you really want to look at it, but, um, yeah, that song, the, the, that, that album and the songs on that album are all inspired by the experiences from, um, 2017 to um, to the point of, I was doing the vocals in January, 2020 um, all inspired by experiences um, that uh, I've had or, or, or life in general, the things that I was watching going on around me. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you know, I wasn't, a am not a big fan of uh, uh, the former president's um, policies and, um, and followers. It's something that I, um, I find um, disgraceful and, and, um, and, um, and non-democratic. Um, and so there are a lot of songs on this record to deal with that. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a lot of songs on Wolves that um, are about my life and, and um, my relationship with my wife and my son and the experiences that we've had together. My, Natalie and I have been together now 20 years. Um, our son's about to turn 14 you know, all those things, um, are represented on this album. Um, and, and also the, the, uh, this dysfunctional relationship I have with, um, with myself, um, it's all represented on this album. So it's really, in my opinion, it's the best Candlebox record. Um, it's better than the debut, but again, that's just my opinion. Um, but I think that there's so much on Wolves that, um, is, is interesting and, and, and musically, uh, beyond, um, uh, what I would have even imagined as a, you know, young 22 year old, 23 year old kid making music. I mean, now that I'm 52 years old, um, I've, I've learned so much, And you, know, you know, there's, if I could go back and tell my, my younger self, anything, it would be just, you know, um, have, have more fun, you know, with yeah. your songwriting. Don't be so, um, I guess, focused on what's important, um, as to what you feel, you know, now I, I write entirely from the heart, um, Back when I first started, I was more interested in um, writing, you know, interesting chord progressions or um, interesting chord changes or parts or how drum parts, you know, worked against a rhythmic pattern of, of a guitar pattern, you know, sort of thing. And now I, I just kind of roll with it.
1: Mm. That's interesting. And that's good advice for songwriters as well, you know. Um,
2: well, I mean, I don't know if you want to have a great hit song. That's not, <laughs> that's not really good. Uh, uh,
1: well, you, you take a little advice. bit from everything, right? Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, myself as a songwriter, too, I would always, if that, if that chorus wasn't sticking, wasn't catching, I'd throw it out mm. the mel- melodic wise, you know? Like, yeah. If, if, yeah. I think that's important if you're trying to write a commercial hit. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: But definitely good advice for somebody um, as they're seasoning themselves into a, a
2: songwriter over time, I think. Yeah, well, other... yeah. I mean, I, seasoning yourselves, great seasoning. there you go.
1: <laughs> now, yeah. what happened during the pandemic? Were you were you creative? Did you write some more? Uh, what do we have to look forward to coming up?
2: No, I wasn't really. I wasn't very prolific. Um, I, 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 we did a couple cover songs. We did the Lover Boy cover song, um, "Turn Me Loose," which was a lot of fun. We did um, nice. "For What It's Worth" by Buffalo Springfield um which was you know great we our our plan was to do an album of um protest songs because i again i was um just so disenchanted with um you know the way that uh, 45 was was leading the country and mm-hmm. and um it's just really, I, I don't understand. I, I, I still can't comprehend what happened. Um, and it's not that I agree with the way that Biden's running things either. Um, that's a whole other subject, but um, at least democracy is in play again. Um, right. But um, I think that, you know, for me, the, the plan was I had approached the guys about doing a full album of protest songs, but the problem was we were all over the place. There are only three of us that are in Los Angeles. Um two of us are on the East coast um, and and getting those songs to kind of go back and forth and and producing them. It's not easy. I mean, if we all lived in the same place, it would have been a hell of a lot easier because we could have just gone down to somebody's studio and recorded these things and knocked them out in 24 hours, but we tried and we just couldn't, we just couldn't get it together. It's really hard to motivate yourself when you're not in the same room with somebody. And I'm, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, again, I'm, I have guitars laying around the house that um, you know, are gathering dust because I just don't, I'm not inspired right now. I don't make records until I'm inspired to make records. And that happens for me about every three to four years. So, um, you know, I, I, I have ideas. I have some things that I've worked on. We have, um, six songs that are in, uh, in process of, of being finished. But, um, the plan is not to get into the studio and record those anytime soon. I, I had hoped to, um, to be recording, um, in in January of this year and and February of this year, but uh, it's just not in the cards right now for us. So um, it just happens, you know?
1: And it will. And it's good that you don't force it. Because
2: I just don't, I don't don't don't. like forcing anything. Yeah, I don't like forcing anything.
1: Now to wrap things up, I always like to ask everyone this silly question. (laughs) Uh, What food, clothing item, toy would make you nostalgic for the 90s? Any of those types of things.
2: Wow. Uh, well, I have all the flannel that I could ever need. I have all the Doc Martens I could ever need. Um, <laughs> gosh, I don't know. Um, I would say, you know, nostalgic for the 90s, I, it would be the, 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 it would be a concert, you know, really. Um, those there's something missing from the honesty of the, the performances from, you know, early, the early nineties, like 90, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I went to see Drop in the Park, Pearl Jam put on in, um, in Seattle, it was a, one of the greatest shows I'd ever seen Lollapalooza. The first two Lollapaloozas were unbelievable. And there's a freedom um, from those shows and those environments and the stage diving and all that sort of stuff that went on with those where the, the people were so into the music. Um, so I guess maybe it would be, you know, the distractions that we have now um, with cell phones and and how, how advanced technology has become has distracted us all from reality and and, and, and the enjoyment of being in one room together um listening True. to music and and losing ourselves in that music and the, that show you know i watched the documentary on woodstock 99 and i just laughed because it's like god what you know we lost the plot right around 1996 you know um is that the one and, that train
1: wrecked really hard was that the yeah one, the, yeah you know,
2: whenever the place burned down and you know some yeah. guy died and girls were being Molested and raped left and right, and um, you know because it was like jock rock all of a sudden. So um yeah, I mean maybe what makes me mis- nostalgic for the '90s is like if I go see the Foo Fighters. Um, uh, you know, I haven't seen Pearl Jam play in years, but um, you know, Soundgarden. I went to see them play um, when they first got back together uh, here in Los Angeles at the Fonda. I um, got to and experience just,
1: that. That's wonderful. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, it took me immediately back to the first time I saw them when I moved to Seattle. But the difference was Chris was playing drums um, when I first saw Soundgarden and he was singing. So it was Mm. a different experience. But, um, yeah, I mean, that kind of emotion that you you get from hearing those songs or even, you know, um, playing now when we play with Stone Temple Pilots um, a lot, even though Scott's no longer with us you know dean and robert and eric and what they've produced as a band over the years every time i play shows with them it immediately takes me back to those early days of us producing our first album when we were writing the songs and and stunt of a pilot's core was out um Mm -hmm. it's such a great record you know um and um and that's kind of i guess what i'm nostalgic for is just that honesty and simplicity of rock and roll back then um It's it's become a um, it's become almost a circus now where you're jumping through all sorts of hoops trying to get people to pay attention to you on stage. I mean, Candlebox never used pyrotechnics. We never have. We never will. Um, it was always a basic lighting system and a lighting rig, and 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 to this day, it's it's still as basic as it was. I mean, it's just about the music for me, and and mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of where I've always been. And maybe that's my fault. Maybe I, if I would step it up to that world of all the fancy flickerings and sort of things that kind of keep people interested in, in our show, we might be a little bit more successful, but that's not really what I'm the cloth it's I'm not, cut from.
1: It's not necessary, honestly.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, but I know what you mean. It's like the distraction, everything now is like you have to catch your attention within seconds or it's gone. It's fleeting. It's crazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I am so grateful for this chat we had today, Kevin. Thank you for
2: your time once again. Oh, my pleasure, Naomi. Thank you.
3: Um, I can't let go of, can't let go of And I don't really want to live chasing something I can't catch hold of, can't catch hold of And I, I was caught in a Thought nothing would change Thought nothing would change
2: dope underscore nostalgia you like twitter better that's cool nostalgia dope or shoot us an email dope nostalgia podcast at gmail.com
1: this podcast is licensed by socan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work